please join me in opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity that is ours to worship you. Help us as we worship you in accordance with your word that you would minister your grace in our lives. We want to be transformed today and throughout the course of this study. Father, we have many burdens on our hearts, whether they be large-scale world issues, large-scale country issues, whether it be social or political, economic, physical, there are so many things going on. We commit ourselves and our minds to you. We, we have burdens for brothers and sisters in Christ that are physically in very difficult times. We commit our brothers and sisters to you knowing that they are in the best care. We have the greatest confidence in your ability to work in our friends and our families. So we commit ourselves and our friends and our families and our brothers and sisters to you. Help us that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continually being presented causes to support in these days. Whether these causes relate to politics, social equality, sexual equality, financial equity, or something else, we are being called upon to serve a cause and the way that things are, no matter what our stance is or what stance we take, we will not satisfy the demands of our cultural rulers. We are always under the rulership of something or someone. We are always under the rulership of something or someone. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to serve a content king with clear directives and divine power. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to serve a content king with clear directives and divine power. We're going to come back to that concept toward the end of our study this morning. Over the coming months, we will be studying Romans 6 through 8. These chapters should never be far from our meditation and our study. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is this way. These chapters will describe for us the pathway toward spiritual transformation. While Romans 3-5 through gave us clear teaching on justification through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 6 through 8 will give us clear teaching 
on sanctification through the power of God's matchless grace based upon the work of Jesus Christ and the applying work of the Spirit of God. Sanctification is an aspect of God's work of salvation. Sanctification is an aspect of God's saving work. Now, we're familiar with these terms, but I'm going to remind you of them. Uh, Repetition is the mother of learning. It refreshes our minds. So let us go over a few theological words to help us understand salvation. There are three tenses to salvation. There's the past tense of salvation. We call that justification. Justification is the past tense. God has saved us, has saved us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the present tense of salvation. God is saving us from the power of sin. And glorification is the future tense of salvation. God will save us from the presence of sin. These are all elements, aspects of God's saving work. He has already done the work through Christ in everyone that has turned from their sin and turned to Christ. He has removed forever the possibility of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God has removed from us the penalty of our sin. In sanctification, God is working to save us from the power of sin. Sin's power, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, has decisively been broken. And yet, every day you feel the power of sin working within you and trying to lord over you. If you don't sense the power of sin working within you or lording over you, you have bigger problems than we're going to talk about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. It means you have not come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. The only way you will not feel the power of sin is if you're allowing sin to carry you along with no opposition. Sin either entirely rules over you or desires to rule over you. Sanctification is God's process whereby not only has sin's power been decisively broken, but gradually the power of sin is losing its grip because we have learned through God's saving work to yield ourselves to the power of God's grace that rules far more powerfully than sin ever has or ever could. Sanctification. God is saving us from the power of sin. One of the questions of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks this question. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? And here's the answer. Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. In that God in justification imputeth or declares the righteousness of Christ... In sanctification, His Spirit infuseth, empowers, infuseth grace and enableth, you can see the old English here, the exercise thereof. In the former, justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, 
sanctification, sin is subdued. Sin comes under the lordship of Christ. Sin comes under the power of grace. Sin comes under the power of Almighty God in the Almighty Spirit of God. Sanctification is God not declaring us righteous, but demonstrating from within us His righteous power through His glorious Spirit. It is this concept that we will consider this morning. The dominion of sin has been broken. We will discuss this in a number of ways in the coming weeks. These concepts should be near to us regularly. As chapter 5 came to a close, Paul was telling us that the law came in and increased sin. The law came in and increased sin. Where the law came in, oh, mighty and dominant, I'm here to rescue. No, it was never here to rescue. The law reveals my sin, increases the wages of my sin because the written record against me of my sin is increasing because I'm transgressing what God says. The law came in and it increased sin. The law does not help us to subdue sin, but rather exposes our sin. Take a look at chapter 5 and verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in not to rescue us, not to eliminate the trespass, but to demonstrate and increase the trespass. So, to this increase of sin, what did God respond with? Well, verse 20 gives us an answer. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, will you read the rest with me? Grace abounded all the more, or grace superabounded. To our increase of sin through the law, God's grace said, I'm not going to measure for measure deal with your sin. I am going to abound over your sin. God's glorious mercy in the forgiveness of sin and God's glorious grace in the declaration of our righteousness abound in the face of sin. So, the question in a human mind could arise. Well, God is being glorified in expressing an abundance of grace through my increasing sin. So, the more I increase my sin, the more God's grace is dispensed, the more God is glorified. Shouldn't I just press hard into my sin so that God can be glorified all the more? Oh, if God is glorified in this much grace, won't He be glorified in this much grace? I should just go on sinning. That grace may abound. God will be pleased. This is not the first time that Paul poses this logical argument. 
not the first time he poses this logical argument. Take a look at chapter 3. He has been accused of this previously. And he's being accused of it still at the time of his writing. In Romans 3 and verse 8, he poses this question. Now, it's not his question. It's a question that he has encountered and he poses in the text. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Paul was and is a proponent of God's matchless, glorious, abundant, justifying grace. Paul was and is a proponent of God's matchless, glorious, abundant, justifying grace. The salvation He proclaimed was not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saved us. The salvation that He proclaimed was by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because He preached salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, And that salvation that was offered and demonstrated was guaranteed through faith in Christ. Paul's opponents, those who are theologically opposed, religiously opposed, they thought that this would be, his theology, a recipe for disaster when it came to godliness, holiness, and righteousness. And so we enter into Romans chapter 6. Look please with me at verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is the kind of question that a religious opponent might expect Paul to stutter and backtrack. They might expect Paul to say something like this, well, well, uh, of course, there are important works to be done to gain God's favor. This is what they expected to hear. However, Paul does not backtrack. He does not stutter. He does not kowtow. But instead, he doubles down on what has already been taught. And then he dives deeply into the doctrine that supports God-empowered salvation. Now, Paul has already provided the groundwork for this teaching early on in the letter. And I want for us to look there just briefly, please. It's a very familiar passage. Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. He's already provided this groundwork at the beginning of the letter. Serving as a runway that we are now starting to to launch off of to understand that salvation that Paul declared through the Gospel was not just released from the penalty of sin. It was also a release 
from the power of sin. Sin's mastery is not stopped by the law. Sin's mastery is not stopped by my fleshly efforts. Sin's efforts are not stopped by church gathering. Sin's efforts are not stopped by any efforts of ours. Sin's power is quenched by God's glorious gospel. Paul has already said this, and now we're about to dive deeply into his grounding it in various ways. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the what? Gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what is the it? The gospel. For in it, the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. How? From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall... What's the word? Live by faith. Live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And the results of faithful living, living by faith, is a righteousness not just declared, but righteousness demonstrated. If there is no righteousness demonstrated in the life, there can be no assurance that righteousness has been declared to our account. Read your Bible all you will. Go to church all you will. Every Bible study you want. Read it, read it, read it. Believe it, believe it, believe it. If there is no evidence of God's righteousness in your life, you have no confidence upon which to understand that God has declared you righteous. Paul tells us that the Gospel brings forth fruit. This is why he was longing to preach the Gospel to those who lived at Rome. And he, this is the church. I want to declare the Gospel to the church. Why? Because the Gospel brings forth fruit. The fruit of salvation and the fruit of sanctification. This is what he's telling us. It's a logical question. If God is glorified by, by abounding in grace, why not abound in sin so God's grace can abound all the more? It's a logical question, but he says this is not the way. Let's head back there to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 through 8. In these chapters, Paul is going to tell us how God's gospel power comes forth in righteousness. Through faith. God's gospel power comes forth in righteousness through faith. Not personal efforts. Not making lists and saying, oh, this, this is really one of my sin problems right here. I'm, I'm going I'm to study everything about this sin problem and I'm going to memorize all these verses on this sin problem and now I'm going I'm I'm to be self-aware of all these sin problems all the time. Now, I'm not saying that that wouldn't help you. I'm not saying that that won't give you some thoughts. It will. It'll, it'll help to understand what God says about sin. Absolutely. About a particular sin? Absolutely. Because you know what will happen? Every time you violate that, 
you'll recognize I is a problem. I'm a problem. And I need to repent of my sin. Again, not repent unto salvation. Repent unto surrender. God, I'm not giving you my life. I, this is why I'm envious. God, I, I, am not, I am not surrendering my will under your grace. This is why I am gluttonous. I am not surrendering myself under your grace. This is why I am desirous of fornication or covetousness, whatever the problem might be. So those, that learning and all those things are not bad and not contrary to the process. But that will not save you from the, the power of those things. What saves you from the power of those things? Faith in Christ. The power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, in Romans 6-8, through 8, he's going to demonstrate these important truths that the power of God's gospel demonstrates itself in righteousness through faith. So, what we have here in Romans chapter 6 is some, some bits of parallelism that I want to demonstrate to you just briefly. There's parallelism between verses 1 through 3 and verses 15 and 16. And the reason I want to point this out is because we, we see some, some division in how Paul deals in chapter 6 with sin. In verses 1 through uh, 14, Paul is going to deal with the problem of controlling, continuing in a lifestyle of sin. In verses 15 and following, he's going to talk to us about giving in and catering to individual sins. So, uh, a lifestyle of sin in the first part of the chapter, the second part of the chapter, naturally starts to demonstrate uh, in, in this area of disobedience, in this area of disobedience. So he, he talks about it kind of in the plural at the beginning, and then in the singulars toward the end. Now, so let's see this parallelism instead of me just discussing it. He starts both of them with a question. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to, say it with me, continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, how does 15 read? What then? Oh, that sounds familiar. Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? You see the parallelism there? There's this question that he asks in both of these sections. Then there's an emphatic negative Answer in both verse 2 and verse 15. They say, by no means. Well, that sounds a little too dignified for me. And, and then the, here's the New King James, ready? Certainly not. <laughs> well, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, absolutely not. The NIV, as well as this translation, by no means. The New Century Version, no. And then the message, I should hope not. And the, th and the second time, hardly. Hmm. All right. The, the Greek expression is me ginita, meganoita. It's, the idea is this. Ready? Let it never be under no circumstances. The King James, God forbid 
This should not be the case. I should not continue in sin that grace may abound. Something is absolutely, utterly wrong with my mind if I think I should dive deeply into sin after having been redeemed from sin. What is wrong with you? Let it never be. There's the parallelism. Verse 2 and verse 15. And then the parallelism continues with a responsive question. Verse 3. Do you not know? Stop right there. We're not going to get into the details. Do you not know? Verse 16. Do you not know? Do you see the parallelism? Is it clear? We have a bit of flavor, I think, for where Paul is headed with Romans chapter 6. And I think this much is clear. We are not celebrating sin. We are celebrating salvation. We are not celebrating sin. We are celebrating salvation. An alcoholic does not celebrate his five-year anniversary sober with a few drinks but rather celebrates that his slavery to alcohol has been broken, and yet he rightly understands that if he is not aware of the pit he once fell into, he will potentially, at the very least, be enslaved again. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Once you or once I cater to sin, I have just yielded myself to its disgusting power all over again. Oh, but it's only just a white lie. It's just a little deception. It's just a little tax evasion. It's just a little jealousy. It's just a little covetousness. It's just a little gluttony. It's just a little fornication. It's not even the real thing. It's just the pornography part of it. It's not even the real thing. Just a little, little sin. Little sin here. Little sin there. Not that big of a deal. Oh, really? Once you yield yourself to sin until you repent and yield yourself to God, You are in big trouble, mister. Paul is warning you and he's warning me not to allow sin to have a place over us as believers that it has no right to hold unless we yield ourselves to it. As we continue to introduce ourselves to where we're headed, I want to remind you of some of the concepts that Romans chapter 5 established for us because it really, he's, he's entered into this having given us some background and we have to understand it to, to, to enter properly. In Adam, death and sin reigned over us. In Adam, in the old man, death and sin reigned over us. Look back at chapter 5 and verse 14. Romans 5.14 Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. Look down at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass death 
reign through that one man. You can stop right there for that. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, you can stop right there. In Adam, death and sin reigned over us. In our old man, before salvation, sin and death reigned over us. Is everyone clear on that? In Christ. This is, this is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a transition here. In Christ, we reign. In Christ, we reign in life through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. Romans 5.17 For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more... Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign. Who reigns? Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign. When? In life. How? Through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reign of sin results in acts of sin. And the outcome is eternal death or what we call condemnation. The reign of sin results in acts of sin and ultimately condemnation. Is that clear? The reign of the justified, those who have been declared righteous, we've received the gift The reign of the justified through grace results in a declaration of righteousness and eternal life. Is that also clear? I think this is clear. So the options before us are to be reigned or to reign. To be reigned or to reign. We looked at this during our children's lesson, so just a brief little reiteration. Genesis 4-7, God made this proclamation. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's like a lion ready to pounce. Crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, or its desire is for you. Very similar to what God said to Eve after she sinned, your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be for your husband. Oh, that sounds luscious. No, not that kind of lusciousness. Different. No. She wants to rule over him. Sin's desire is to rule over you, but you, you, Cain, you must rule over it. You must rule over it. It. There is major competition in the quest to rule our souls. And so, here, ready? Take a breath. We're introducing ourselves to this passage. And what I want for us to see in chapter 6, 7, and 8, we have this concept of who will rule over us. Who will rule over us? And we've got to do this quickly. In chapter 6, what we are going to notice is that either sin or grace will rule. Either sin or grace. Look at verses 12 through 14 of chapter 6. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law that increases sin, but under grace that dominates sin. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to moral lawlessness... So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So, just a very brief clarification. We reign as believers. We're to reign, but we're to reign under the reign of God through His grace dispensed by His Spirit. So who's really reigning? Who do we really want to reign God, by His grace, through His Spirit, in accordance with His Word. But the way that the Bible is telling us in chapter 5, because we've been redeemed, and we've come from death to life, we've received the abundance of the gift, the free gift of righteousness. We reign in life through Christ. You will either be reigned by sin or you will reign over sin. But the only way to reign over sin in chapter 6 is through grace. As you come to chapter 7, there's more competition for domination, dominion over us. You will either be ruled by the law or by Jesus Christ. Either the law will rule or Jesus Christ will rule. Take a look please at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the uh, body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Why? Because we belong to Christ. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruits for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul makes it clear repeatedly in chapter 7 that the problem does not reside with the law, but with me. The problem is not the law. The problem is me. Look at chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Oh, what does he say here? Certainly not. Absolutely not. The law is not sin. The law is not the problem. Look uh, further at verse 12. So the law is what? Holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Oh, wait a second. I see the problem. But I am of the flesh sold under sin. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? Who? I know the answer. Verse 25. Thanks Be to God through Jesus Christ 
our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, because the law of God is demonstrated through God's powerful spirit and the work of Jesus. But with my flesh, when it's just me, when it's me, I serve the law of sin. Where's the problem? Is it the law? Is the law the problem? No. What's the problem? Me. What's the problem? You. Either the law will rule you, and when the law rules you, it just reveals your sin, or Jesus Christ will rule you, and you'll bear fruits unto holiness. What a glorious difference. As we come to chapter 8, same kind concept, but different. Either the flesh or the Holy Spirit will rule. Either the flesh or the Holy Spirit will rule. Look at verses 3-6 through six of Romans chapter 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. You see that? Weakened by the flesh. Not weakened of its own resources. Weakened by the flesh. Could not do. Because it wasn't designed to. God has done what the law couldn't do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who's ruling? Either the flesh, which yields sin, or the Spirit, which yields obedience to God. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set the mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So, as we navigate through this section, we will understand that we are always under the rulership of someone or something. Who or what is ruling you? And we have some choices to make. To whom will I yield allegiance? Consider this. Satan is a self-serving master. Our flesh is never satisfied. And our culture is always shifting. These are not good masters. You don't want these dominating you. You will always lose. In the face of these uncertain rulers, we are presented with other rulers. And for those who serve in the kingdom, we have the opportunity to be ruled by Jesus Christ. Our ruler is a content king. He doesn't need anything. If I, if I had a need, would I tell you? Doesn't God say that somewhere? If I were hungry, would I ask you to give me something to eat? He doesn't need anything. Listen to the words of your Savior. I, I hope he's your Savior. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find there in me rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the king that believers serve. Come, I'll give you rest. He's described, God is described in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as the blessed and only sovereign. We don't have time to look at it. Blessed means content. He's content. So your king is content. Secondly, our ruler gives clear directions, or I said earlier, directives. Clear directives. I want to remind you of a passage that you're familiar with. It's from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul is writing to the Colossian church, and he's telling them how he prays for them. It should inform how you and I pray for one another. Listen to what he says. And so from the day we heard about your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled, that's controlled, with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He gives clear directives. My prayer for you, and this is, I mean this literally, my prayer for you and myself is that we would be controlled by knowing what God says. So our king is content and he gives clear directives. Finally, our king or our ruler provides divine power. Same passage, Colossians chapter 1. On the screen, verses 11 through 14. Being strengthened with all power. Well, is this generic power? Is this like just power that we find somewhere from a, a, an electrical outlet? Being strengthened with all power according to His... What does that next word say? Glorious. That word there is a word that means sovereign. Do you know what sovereign means? Ruling. We have a, a, a ruler who's content and gives clear directives. And Paul's prayer is that my strength to walk worthy, your strength to walk worthy, would not come from our resources, our power, but from the almighty, sovereign power of God. Real, divine power. You can read the rest of the passage on your own today. The, the point that we have to understand is when, when we serve in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we serve a contented, peaceful, needing nothing king who offers rest, peace, and strength. A king who gives us clear understanding of what he wants, doesn't shift and, and change like every other master in this world. And he gives us the ability to do what he's called us to do. Being under grace. Which is a concept that Romans 6.14 brings to our attention. Being under grace means a lot more than being forgiven. It means that God enables you and me with his strength to do his will. You've been struggling with areas of holiness, godliness, and righteousness, if you're a believer, I want to give you some good news. You have all the resources at your disposal 
that God can in you rule over those desires, those temptations, that constant echo in the back of your mind that you have to have this, you need this, you've got to do this, you've got to go here. You have all the resources needed, divine resources, to rule over all of that. You can rule. Sin can rule. If you're ruling according to God's mighty power, God's ruling. It is through the power of God's grace in the person of God the Spirit that we put off the rulership of Satan, our flesh, and our culture. And it is through the power of God the Holy Spirit that we live under the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and operate in accordance with the clear directives of the Bible. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Father, we know that only you can provide for us um, spiritually a desire for you. Only you can quicken us, make us alive by your Spirit. So now, we humbly ask that your power be on display in us and through us for your glory. I pray, Father, for anyone that's listening to this that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that you would cause them to recognize their desperate need and to cry out for salvation, knowing that you delight to answer those who come to you in faith. I pray, Father, for each believer, myself included, that we would not allow sin to rule in our mortal bodies, but instead that we would yield ourselves to you and rule over sin by your power through your Spirit. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.